Maximum Health with your host, Dr. Ken Gray. Dr. Gray obtained his master's in both acupuncture and oriental medicine from the Atlantic Institute of Oriental Medicine. Dr. Gray enjoys both being a physician as well as being an educator. His unique approach to holistic healing has taken him abroad to lecture in Germany and treat sports professionals in Hawaii and France. He is co-author of several books on food therapy. His office is in Jupiter, Florida, where he has practiced for over a decade and where he resides. Now it's time for Maximum Health with Dr. Ken Gray. Welcome back, everyone. This is Maximum Health Radio Quality Living with yours truly, Dr. Ken Gray, holistic physician. Thank you for joining us every Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard on 88.9 FM, WQCS National Public Radio. We have uh, wonderful guests, as always, every week. And um, this guest is its such a true, truly great honor to be on the phone with the, the guests we have for you today. And... Uh, for many reasons, but one is that it reinforces how important our part, doing our part is. And in this case, it's the health of our planet. It's it's what's happening with the climate. It's what's happening with the sea levels. It's what's happening in our communities and how that comes to really uh, attach itself to the mission of each of us as individuals and our households and really focusing on that rather than what are they going to do about it? This is not about they, it's about us. And we have Miss Jackie Patterson on the phone with us. She is the uh, director uh, United's, of, the, of the Environmental and Climate Justice Program at the NAACP. Thank you, Miss Patterson, for joining us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad for your interest in this topic. Well, it's of the utmost importance. It's timely, uh, more than timely. It's overdue. And obviously, this is about maximum health and quality living. And without this planet being at uh, <laughs> tip-top shape, we're we're uh, um, we're in for some uh, unfortunate uh, situations. Yes. So, so you've been traveling a lot. We're talking to you right now in Washington D.C. And uh, amidst your flying around the globe and your meetings, what comes to mind right now of advancements in this area of climate change and talks and 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 you know, all of your meetings, what's going on? Yeah, good question. So much. Um, Yesterday I was at a meeting with folks talking about how do we build resilience for our communities in in response to the fact that climate change is already hitting us first and worst in terms of whether it's the sea level rise is driving people from their homes already in coastal areas or the disasters that are happening with increasing frequency and severity that, you know, obviously have displaced folks and from Houston to Florida to to Puerto Rico. Um, so these are the, the conversations that we've been having. How do we actually make communities uh, prepared for this and work with communities to build their own resilience um, in the in the face of that? And then also how do we how do we stem the tide of climate change and the way it's affecting our communities? Because the very 
the very uh, facilities that are emitting the greenhouse gas emissions that drive climate change are also polluting our communities with mercury, arsenic, lead, benzene, and other things that are that are uh, tied to the high rates of asthma, the cancer clusters, and so forth in our communities. So we're working on how do we push back against a situation where they're trying to actually um, open up those, remove regulations against pollution instead of actually strengthening regu- regulations. Hmm. That that in itself is a huge topic because there's a drive uh, about that that is not about our health. It's not about the well-being of all. It's about something else. And yeah. what would that word be? Would you say? Uh, that word. Or that something <laughs> else. You know, to me, it comes with. The, the word I think of is greed, but, you know, I don't because yeah. uh, it, it can't be good. No, um, it's definitely not good. I mean, we talk about the, the whole push for profits over people, and we talk about, yeah, definitely corporate greed mm-hmm. that, that discounts anything with regard to people's health and well-being, all for the pursuit of profits for mm-hmm. a wealthy few. Now, now I do want to back up. We met, I, I was privileged to be at a, uh, a monumental talk at the Norton Museum in, in Palm Beach, in West Palm Beach, uh, which is world-renowned for its amazing exhibits. And in this case, it had an exhibit, an art exhibit, uh, spotlighting photography done through NASA and a photographer and an artist and, and, and capturing our footprint, our presence on the Earth and what's happened and our influence on the Earth since we've been here. And what I wanted to say about that was that I looked around this room, and this room was... Uh, of course, all races, all color, all of that, and, and different uh, financial standings. But primarily, of course, it's the Norton. It's an art uh, museum, and therefore you have wealthy individuals who were interested in what can we do. So, you know, when when we do bring in the corporate greed, not all people that are wealthy are greedy, but these are people who are wealthy that wanted to do something. And you were speaking to them from a person that's a director at the NAACP, right? National mm-hmm. Association for Advancement of Colored People, but here they are listening to you and wanting to know your answers and your, you know, asking you questions about what we can all do. So I guess I'm making the point that even though you're with the NAACP, your job has now been about communities at large, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, that is absolutely true. Um, okay. I've, be- I've ended up now splitting my time between working directly with our branches and chapters and working with them on building their capacity to now being doing what they call field building, where I'm out there trying to help other folks to know, A, how to work better with our communities, particularly with some of the large organizations that want to work with our communities but don't necessarily get how to have an equity lens and an equity focus to our work, mm-hmm. as well as working with groups like like that, the group in, um, in, in Florida and helping to raise awareness so folks actually see how these issues are impacting folks and what are the types of things that we can do to speaking to universities, which is what I'm doing increasingly more and more, um, is speaking with universities and, and professionals who are coming out of universities about how they can really integrate an equity-based environmental and climate justice lens into what they do, no matter what who they are, geographers, geologists, climate scientists, et cetera. So, yeah. and, and I like that word equity and, and sort of translates into having skin in the game, right? Yeah. I, I love that. Because when you don't have skin in the game, you, you can really dismiss things. When you're involved and you have skin in the game, you have equity in something, you feel involved, you feel like you're doing something, you feel like your efforts are being recognized and making a difference. And everybody wants to do that when they're involved in something. They want to feel that and they want to know that there's going to be a return. 
Yes. And in this case, the return is that our children and our children's children will have at least a good portion of the beauty that we've come to know, you know, clean beaches, uh, air that's breathable. Um, what else? <laughs> Parks, <laughs> forests that we can walk in and, and, yes. and, and through. Um, I mean, you know, being able to walk outside without masks and without uh, uh, and being able to walk outside at all without being exactly. burned uh, yeah. because of the heat. I mean, you know, these are simple things that uh, we thought we were entitled to. But in reality, we were supposed to be the stewards. We were supposed exactly. to be the caregivers. And we lost that position and we lost right. that, that, that sense. So let's break it down for some of the things that we could should be concerned with with climate change. And, and let us let us have an idea of what the true, you know, sense of is this real, you know, because there is that discussion, too. Yes, there is. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, it's, it's it, trying to help it to be, you, you said making making it real. So that's what you said. I kind of. Yeah. Give us give us the facts and where you're getting yeah. it from. Yeah. So. So many. Um, so certainly, so on, on kind of both the driver side of climate change and then on the impact side of climate change, we have uh, some key facts that are important to think of in terms of the the, uh, the practices that drive climate change, which we know that um, the greenhouse gas emissions from energy-based from um, from fossil fuel-based energy production is at the uh, is is the the number one driver of um, of the greenhouse gas emissions that cause climate change, and coal-based um, energy production is of that the number one um, emitter of carbon dioxide emissions. We also know that the very uh, carbon dioxide emissions, that, uh, the very coal plants that emit carbon dioxide emissions, are also emitting, as I said before, mercury, arsenic, and lead. And that for us, African American kids are um, two, uh, three to five times more likely to enter into the hospital from an asthma attack, and those same facilities are emitting sulfur dioxide and nitrogen dioxide, which exacerbate asthma. And they're two to three, and our kids are two to three times more likely to die of asthma. And so, for us, not only do we see the other side of climate change in terms of those impacts that I talked about earlier, but we also see that the drivers of climate change have 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 co-hazards for our communities in that in the uh, pollution that it puts into our communities. Okay. And then on the other side, with uh, where we are, even even now, before before we even do the things that we need to do to stem the tide of climate change, we already have some level of climate change that's already baked in because of the emissions that we've put out so far. So the fact that we're already extre- experiencing this extreme weather the fact that we are already finding communities like the Ile de Jean Charles Band of the Biloxi Chittimaca Choctaw group in Louisiana, already they had to move because their their land was inundated by sea level rise and um and we know that places in nearby where they live where they live in Louisiana, another place called Thibodeau, they're losing a football field size um, of land mass every hour because not only is the sea uh, the seas rising and overtaking the land, but the land is actually sinking because of what they, because of um, the amount of drilling, oil drilling that's happening there that's kind of digging them the land out from under them. So there's so many interconnected um, ways that we're being impacted um, by the drivers and by the impact of climate change, and I could just go on and on, but those are a few fact-based examples. And in the in the process of that sort of explanation of what's going on, one thing I got from it is that 
<clears throat> and very much synonymous with what's on the website at the uh, NAACP, race is the number one indicator for placement of toxic facilities in this count, uh, country. So race yeah. is the number one indicator for the placement of toxic facilities in this country. So what's interesting of that, whatever may happen directly to these communities where there's this release of chemicals, harmful chemicals in the air and so forth and so on in the water, eventually it does start to ripple and involve other communities that may may have not uh, thought they, they could be affected. Yes. And so we're seeing that now. And yes. it's and it's compounding at a level that's faster than anyone thought could happen or would accept could happen. Exactly. Got it. Okay. Well, what can we do? Yeah. <laughs> so What's the answer? <laughs> yeah. Fortunately, there are things that we can do, and there's things that people are already doing. We just need to take them to scale. So we need to shift away, as I said before, in terms of energy being the number one driver, fossil fuel-based energy production. We can shift away from fossil fuel energy, uh, fossil fuel-based energy production altogether. We can a uh, push for inter- energy efficiency. We can be more energy efficient in our homes. We can push for more energy efficient buildings in terms of policies and in terms of our own practices. Uh, we we, we um, waste 80% of the energy that we generate now. And so if we think about the, each of the, each of those percentage points, there's so many tons of, of uh, carbon dioxide and other pollutants that are being pumped into our atmosphere. So we really need to go first and foremost into energy efficiency. Two, we need to shift to clean energy, and we can all play a role in that. Whether we're putting solar on our rooftops, whether we're putting forward a, we're developing a community garden, or whether we're buying our energy from renewable electricity credits, there's all kinds of ways that we can really support a clean energy economy, and certainly by pushing for the policies like renewable portfolio standards and energy efficiency resource standards, we can all push us all towards this clean energy and more energy efficient economy. And that's definitely first and foremost. As you were talking about with the waste, we can move away from now this notion of kind of throwing away is basically going into landfills and so forth and or incinerators, each of which produce a lot of methane, which is the number two kind of most potent greenhouse gas emission. And we can really move towards more recycling. We can ensure that each of our communities have has recycling ordinances. We can really put landfills and incinerators out of business by having by supporting a recycling economy that 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 doesn't bury or burn waste um and we and we see communities do that places like san francisco and that creates jobs as well so those are a couple of the things that we can do we can start also creating policies to help us prepare for the impacts of climate change that are already baked in we need to make sure that we have policies that protect coastal communities as it relates to sea level rise and, and provides resources for them when they're doing planned retreat to move away from those areas that will inevitably be inundated by water. We have to have more equity-based emergency management policies because right now we see how not only are certain communities hurt worse, first and worse, but then even in the re- redevelopment, those communities, many communities end up being displaced by what they call disaster capitalism. And we need to make sure we're working on policies to make sure that that doesn't happen. So those are just a few things that we can do. For those of you just tuning in, uh, if you missed any portion of the show, there's prx.org 
Public Radio Exchange, and this will be a uh, podcast on there, and it's a free service. Uh, we are speaking with uh, Jackie Patterson, Director, Environmental and Climate Justice at the NAACP, which is the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. However, she is uh, speaking to us from Washington, D.C., and, and travels constantly, speaking to all communities, not just communi- communities of color, but now universities and uh, corporations and such, and she's an authority in this field. And uh, we are very fortunate to have her, uh, Miss Jackie. The, uh, you know, I see there's hope, and I and I get what you're saying. And I'm wondering, does your tone change when you're speaking to a community of color? To uh, say a, do you speak to middle schoolers? Do you speak to high schoolers? Or do you just speak at universities? Where where? Yeah, you speak all, to all ages. All, yeah, all age levels for sure. And, um, and we actually have developed a teaching environmental justice in the classroom curriculum yeah. to really help kids to not only hear when, you know, me or others are speaking, but to actually, you know, have, um, have hands-on experience with whether it's um, uh, testing their air quality, water quality, soil quality, ways that they can actually be in, in, close, um, in close engagement around, around discovering these things for themselves. And we know at that age it's always good to be able to, to be as hands-on as possible. So, so we, we do that to make sure the kids are, are engaged. I, yeah, mm-hmm. definitely the high schools. And we also have been engaging some of the youth around how to, how to not only take in those um, that experience, whether it's doing air and soil and water quality testing, but also to be able to tell stories. So we are um, we have a contest going on um, with uh, with our youth to be able to develop videos, spoken word, et cetera, around what they're hearing and learning around environmental and climate justice, so that they can actually help to to, tell, to shift the narrative around this notion of job-killing regulations, for example, and really recognize that these regulations are, are life-affirming regulations, and there are jobs that can be had from switching to a clean energy economy. So those are the kind of narratives that we want to put out there, and, and youth are, are really great at, at, at putting together um, compelling um, messaging mm-hmm. uh, vehicles. Yeah. Do, when you look in their eyes, do they get it? Do you, or do do they give you the same look like some of our leaders? Uh, unfortunately, it, it varies, <laughs> and that's why that that's why that uh, experiential learning we find is so important. So that so it's not that they have to believe me up there, kind of lecturing them. Yeah. It's that they are actually out there doing the observations and seeing, like doing, looking at you know, if they're like a coastal community, seeing that the the the, the waters are rising, mm-hmm. and looking themselves, looking at the data and seeing how many storms have happened in our community over time and how that's been increasing, really getting them directly involved in discovering for themselves. I mean, mm-hmm. these kids are so smart, so brilliant. Um, it's just really providing the tools for them to for self-discovery. You've used the words, uh, you know, climate justice, and and I see, you know, in, in some of the data I've read on you, environmental injustice. You know, these words now, it, I think it's the first time in history that we're using them mm. in the same sentence: climate yeah. justice, environmental injustice. Mm. It's. It makes it seem like almost now we have to fight for it. Yes. It's no longer something we just can expect to happen over time. You know, just to be there tomorrow. <laughs> it's true. It is very true. And yeah, yeah um, really helping folks to 
I mean, one of the things that we even had to to push back again or maybe lean into and help to redirect was the fact that climate change before recently was really seen as kind of this distant polar bear ice cap thing. Mm-hmm. And we really had to infuse the, the narrative and, and language around justice and recognizing that you know that that we're we're all part of the same ecosystem, and while those ice caps are being impacted, while those polar bears are being impacted, communities are being impacted as well, and we have an interdependent existence, and then we need to deal with the whole. And so, yeah, slowly uh, folks are coming to that realization. Yeah, the first uh, people who are being impacted, and then the others. Mm-hmm. What I find odd is that it's you know you say coming to that realization. But we had there was a time when we did have leaders and wealthy individuals and families and such um, that were part of the development of industry, yes, but also believed that we should preserve Mother Earth. And they dedicated large parcels of land and found ways to fund it and preserve it and write it into law. And now we have the other side where we have people of power and so forth um, diminishing those parcels of protected land yes. that don't didn't realize why these you know these 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 other individuals saw it with forethought that we would need this we would the earth needed protection yes. and that that's what the power was given to them for right so how do we then instill that to the next generation is the is is what I'm hearing here is that you're going to these schools you're you're getting people on the ground you're getting their hands in the dirt you're getting them associated back to the earth and yeah. I think a large part of it is to get them from, probably from um, out in, out of the <laughs> the screens, <Yeah. laughs> the television screens, the phone screens, the Twitters, mm-hmm. the Snapchats, the this and that, and back to touching and feeling and associating, connecting. Absolutely. Yeah, very true. We're actually, yes. And so we, we love um, uh, efforts like the Urban Ecology Center, which is in Milwaukee, where they are doing just that, getting kids out in nature and having these conversations about this interdependence and so forth. And so we're we're um, trying to do the same, and we're also and do the um, teaching environmental justice in the classroom um, toolkits and 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 resources. We're helping to find ways to 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 uh, forge that reconnection in ways that are fun and engaging for for children and for youth. Um, also working with um, having some early conversations with groups like the Nature Conservancy about how we can take um, kids into some of the wild places that they might not necessarily experience and help to have lessons around how we are interconnected with places, whether it's the the bayous of Louisiana or the the, the mountains of Appalachia or or places like Antarctica and, and Iceland um, where they actually can see the ice caps that are that we saw together um, at the uh, at the event in uh, in Florida. So, you know, I'm, I'm listening to you, and I'm thinking back again to that first time I saw you on this panel in person, and you sat on this panel with a uh, congressman, you sat on it with a um, former mayor of Miami, uh-huh. uh, who was hands-on involved with seeing and witnessing climate change and how it's affected, you know, the tip of Florida. Um, a peninsula, which is very easy to see how the the sea level rise is affecting us. Um, you sat there with uh, one of the heads at NASA involved uh-huh. with all of this. 
you sat there uh, with a director from FIU. Uh-huh. And, you know, in the audience, I think majority, and, and not to dismiss all of these other individuals, I think definitely director of FIU because she has that sort of premise of engaging people as well. But everybody really wanted to hear your thoughts when it came down to it because of this ability to engage people, uh-huh. um, to get people invested. And I don't know how you're doing so much as one person, but I will say I thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and and I pray and I pray and I pray that your health stays uh, well. I, you sound a little bit under the weather, probably from all the traveling and flying. Yeah. And, and I don't know how you're handling it, but I do hope you can keep it up and stay well. And if there's any way I can help, please let me know. Um, but that being said, uh, you know, I, I hope that people will reach out to your organizations, plural, because there's a lot of them that you've now uh, gotten invested in in this uh, fight for climate justice. Yes. Um, the revolution. Yes. Uh, of, of of for for energy justice for all communities. Yep. But how do they get involved? If we want to give them a few websites. Or, yeah. Uh, thank you. Yeah, there's, there's a few avenues depending on where people's interests lie. Certainly our website is NAACP.org, and we are, to the extent possible, having different places where people can, as you look at our documents, people see different other organizations that they can connect to. If they're interested in green schools, they can go with, you know, go to, um, to there's a, a group actually called Green Schools. Um, so for each of the avenues that people might want to pursue, if they're interested in doing kind of a holistic community model, they can go to ecodistricts.org. If they're interested in doing uh, clean energy, there is um, there's a group called Clean Energy Works that has uh, avenues. If people want to work with rural electric co-ops, uh, there's groups like uh, One Voice Mississippi that that is uh, and we own it who are doing work around rural electric co-ops. There's so many different avenues for everyone. Like everyone, depending on what someone's interest is, whether it's something as 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 specific as birds to something as specific as green schools to something like uh, waste management, one can go to the Global Alliance for Incinerator Alternatives or the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, if people want to start a recycling project, if people want to do a local food movement um, to do, to start to grow their own food, there's a website called Slow Foods that people can go to. Uh, the Climate Justice Alliance has a number of different organizations that are doing great frontline community work on all of these issues. Those are literally just a sampling of possibilities. But uh, we continue, as we find out about groups, we continue to add them to our our resource list on our website so okay yeah well there you have it everyone this has been another maximum health quality living and we spoke with jackie patterson director of environmental and climate justice at the naacp yes. you have some information i hope you do something with it see you next time thank you miss jackie sure thank you it's a pleasure take care get up stand up stand up for your right